and welcome to a new episode of uh, COVID-19, the Pandemic in Europe podcast series by the UCL European Institute. In our series, we'll be looking at European responses to and realities under the coronavirus crisis and explore a range of questions from the economic fallout to the impact on civil liberties. My name is Uta Steiger and I am Executive Director of the Institute in today's episode, we will be focusing on Hungary and its newly implemented coronavirus protection law. Now, the pandemic clearly presents governments all over the world with unprecedented challenges. Many, including, of course, the UK as well, have introduced extraordinary measures to address the crisis and to protect their citizens. But the crisis has also arguably provided cover to governments with more authoritarian leanings to seize the moment and an inordinate amount of new powers. Hungary was already by far the EU's worst offender when it came to the erosion of democratic standards. But with the new law, the Hungarian parliament has now conferred de facto unlimited emergency powers on Viktor Orban. To explore the significance of this, I am joined first by Tom Lohmann, who works on Central European History at UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies. I will then be talking to his colleague, Sean Hanley, who's Associate Professor in Politics at the same school, to shed light really on the wider ramifications of the crisis in the region. Last but certainly not least, we'll have Ronan McRae, who is a professor of constitutional and European law here at UCL, and who will tell us more about the EU's response. So with that, uh, let me ask you, Tom, uh, who has been working on the history and particularly on the country of Hungary, um, to set the scene for us. To begin with, could you tell us what Orban's emergency coronavirus protection law entails exactly? Yes, the, um, the situation with the coronavirus in Hungary is growing more serious. Earlier this week, the government introduced legislation uh, which effectively declares that there is a state of emergency in Hungary. Uh, and that, that state of emergency will continue for as long as the virus remains. Uh, this particular piece of legislation is fairly short. Uh, it, it consists of a short preamble, 10 paragraphs, and a small number of explanatory comments uh, afterwards. And this law uh, was passed with the sole support of the two-thirds of the parliament, which um, which supports the current government and with the unanimous opposition of all of the parliamentary opposition parties. Uh, it will um, enable the government to disregard any other piece of legislation, including the so-called basic law or the provisions of the Hungarian constitution. And it imposes uh, swinging penalties for those who obstruct the government's efforts to contain and eliminate the virus or spread fake news about it. Um, so it's a short law. It's a sweeping law. And it is a law that empowers the government uh, to, um, to act however it wishes, even if its decisions contravene existing legislation. 
And uh, this has provoked concerns that Hungary is moving towards a dictatorship. Am I right in thinking, Tom, that um, it is in the government's discretion to define when the end of the threat of the virus um, is deemed to have come? So there is no sunset clause in there at all. Um, could I also just uh, clarify that um, there is no other constitutional force that could put any check on Orban while the emergency is ongoing? The law certainly empowers the government to to um, to to act however it wishes, even if Parliament does not speak on a particular issue. Um, so, in a sense, yes, the government is being empowered to pass whatever decrees it requires, even if those decrees uh, go against existing legislation or the, the provisions of the constitution. And although the Parliament could um, could end the state of emergency if it so wished, uh, with the government controlling two-thirds of the parliament, uh, I suspect that the parliament will very firmly follow the government's recommendations on this. And you're absolutely right that, uh, that the, the assumption here is that, uh, that parliament has now essentially deferred to the government to, to, um, to act as it fit. It is obviously part of a longer-standing trend within Hungary, which has raised concerns among observers um, inside and outside the country, its continued um, march towards something that Orban uh, wants to see as liberal democracy, but where uh, the democratic pillars have been somewhat eroded. But is it true that um, Orban has a very firm grasp on the majority of media being provided um, in the country? And um, similarly, uh, the Supreme Court is, is uh, now um, stacked with people who are very much in favour of Orban's policies themselves. Yes, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, um, the, the government uh, has stacked the Constitutional Court. Uh, it has politicised the, um, the prosecutorial office. It has uh, imposed a very tight grip on all... all uh, variations of the state media, including state television. Uh, it uh, now effectively controls all of the local newspapers in Hungary, from which large numbers of rural Hungarians get their news. And um, it, it has uh, made every effort to centralize authority. So that is not necessarily something new. Uh, that is something that, uh, that every government in Hungary since 1990, and of course before, uh, has used similar tactics, but it is pushed the politicization of the bureaucracy, the media, and the courts uh, into onto a, 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 a higher level than had hitherto taken place uh, since the collapse of communism. Can I probe that a little further? It, it'd be quite interesting to understand how, to what extent, the current, uh, the latest law is in fact unprecedented in recent Hungarian history. I mean, we haven't had a rule by decree before. Now, you could argue that COVID is itself a very special circumstance, of course. But given the absence of a sunset clause, there is nothing inhibiting um, Orban to continue using the emergency legislation for as long as he deems um, uh, opportune. Is it not the case also that given the current uh, uh, environment, just as you have described, the country is in fact so far away from the democratic standards that um, an organization such as the European Union requires that it would um, no longer qualify if it 
were outside and wanted to join as a member. Yes. Uh, just, just a point of clarification. I mean, generally speaking, in Hungary, decrees are used to expand on the law or to act where the law is silent. Uh, the difference with this piece of legislation is that it permits Hungarian the government to issue degrees that, that directly contravene uh, existing laws. Mm -hmm. That that is that is um, that is unusual. That is um, that is a step beyond what normally takes place. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the sunset clause, I mean, uh, critics would argue that uh, that an explicit uh, time, uh, uh, explicit date, explicit cutoff point is necessary. Um, for a proper sunset clause to work. So it, I think, again, it comes down to a certain question of trust here. Uh, how will the, um, the end of the crisis be determined? Uh, and that is something which is open to question. Um, more broadly, however, I think you're absolutely right that there has been a growing concern during the time of the Fidesz government about about its compatibility with Europe. In fact, uh, there were serious questions raised about uh, the new Hungarian constitution that was enacted uh, in two 2012, about the electoral reforms that took place that, uh, that, um, that moved Hungary much more towards a first-past-the-post system, uh, and about uh, the politicization of, 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 of the media and um, the bureaucracy, not to mention the the, the erection of the of the wall uh, on Hungary's southern border with Serbia, uh, designed to prevent an influx of migrants. And the European Union has been um, uh, caught in in a complicated relationship with Hungary, which has involved at the moment uh, a um, temporary suspension of of the um, of the Hungarian government party Fidesz from the. Um, in, in Parliament, uh, as a, as a as a slap on the wrist. Uh, however, what I would say is that Hungary has been quite skilled at building coalitions with other uh, conservative uh, or, or, or nationalist parties in Europe, and at working out how far it can go uh, without causing major problems. So, in other words, it has uh, proved to be reasonably good at uh, calming the most significant criticisms and, and keeping on good terms with the most influential figures within the, within the European Union, not notably Angela Merkel, who has up to now uh, been hesitant to openly uh, denounce the, the policies of the Orban government. Thank you, Tom, for analysing the situation in Hungary for us just now. Uh, let us now take a step back and explore what it might hold in stock for Europe, more broadly speaking. Now, in the past, uh, Viktor Orban has been very vocal about wanting to refashion the EU in his illiberal political image. And, and I think it's true to say that there is still concern that he's becomes a sort of um, a role model for other European leaders with illiberal leanings from uh, Poland uh, to, to Italy. So turning now to our second guest, Sean Hanley. Sean, you work on comparative Central and East European politics with a particular interest in democratic backsliding. What does it look like elsewhere in the region? Are governments responding with similar autocratic intent or are there differences? I think there are fairly important differences in the region. Um, it's probably true to say that uh, Viktor Orban's um, government in Hungary has been 
a kind of source of inspiration and a um, a kind of outrider in terms of uh, what illiberals and populists can can get away with. Um, but I think if we look at a country like the Czech Republic, um, it's certainly true that the country's populist prime minister, the, the billionaire Andrei Babish, has some fairly illiberal uh, instincts. Um, but at the moment, the Czech Republic's uh, state of emergency is much, much more limited than what we see in Hungary. Uh, they haven't passed any new legislation. There's been some proposals by the defence minister, who's another um, politician with some very illiberal instincts. But um, these are very far from having been passed. Um, elsewhere in Poland, uh, Poland has a, a, a liberal nationalist government. Uh, but it's a government which has um, held back from uh, imposing full emergency powers because it wants to go ahead with the uh, presidential election in May uh, for political reasons, uh, because it thinks it has a greater chance of winning it. Uh, so there's a good deal of variation and there isn't a straightforward contagion from Hungary, I don't think. A plausible interpretation is probably that the COVID crisis has really uh, sort of turbocharged um, what's already been going on in different countries. So in Hungary, uh, where the government of Viktor Orban has gradually really been building up the executive at the expense of other institutions for years. Um, we have this uh, very draconian uh, new law. Um, Poland's always been much more um, competitive. The government has needed to win elections. Um, still, things have been more balanced um, elsewhere. So at the moment, I think it's really accelerated the different patterns of development without really uh, changing them significantly. How can we uh, see the role of civil society in that space? If we see a high mortality rate and dissatisfaction with uh, government preparations or, or the handling of it, a health system that uh, may not be up to scratch because of not you know, insufficient um, investment over the years. Is it is there a possibility that public opinion would turn against governments that they have thus far um, supported? It, it's certainly possible. Um, and of course, this is one reason why Poland's government wants to press ahead if it can with presidential elections, or at the very least be able to uh, dictate when precisely they will take place uh, if they are um, postponed. Civil society is a very um, kind of mixed um, animal in Central and Eastern Europe. One of the interesting features is of what's happened in Hungary and Poland is that we've seen the rise of a kind of conservative, um, religious, kind of Catholic, nationalist civil society. And we, we don't quite know how this will be um, involved in the, uh, in the COVID crisis. And we, don't, we also don't know how the crisis will, will will play out. It may be uh, that countries in the region manage it relatively successfully. And if that is the case, this will be presented as a success of uh, the more liberal model of politics that, that, that some politicians in the region have tried to have tried to uh, champion. So it, it could really cut both ways. And civil society is really very uh, is really very polarized. And um, that complicated pattern is, is going to continue during and after the current crisis. Mm. I recall Orban really pointing towards Putin's Russia or even China in the way that they're handling the crisis as uh, in non-democratic countries um, taking a very different stance. And so if they do end up being successful, 
be quite interesting how that, as you are just outlining, plays into the hand of the regimes already. Now, the current developments do seem really momentous on so very many levels for you who's been interested in democratic backsliding for so long. Um, how do you think we can understand or study the phenomenon of eroding democratic standards at this point in time? Mm. I mean, some of what we're seeing is really very familiar from, from what's already taken place in the last uh, decade or so. So really, it's uh, elected governments, which are the main uh, vehicle for the erosion of democracy. It's it's not the, the military or the kind of some kind of uh, movement emerging from the, the, the fringes. Uh, they're working under the guise of constitutional and sort of liberal democratic um, politics. Um, we're also seeing this familiar kind of uh, discourse, which uh, you kind of allude to, of the West, uh, established democracies in Western Europe being uh, kind of incompetent and ineffective and more authoritarian or illiberal solutions being, uh, being um, better. Um, but it's possible that the crisis may, may bring us um, some changes in the way we look at uh, democratic backsliding as well. Um, it underlines, for example, the role of what political scientists call uh, exogenous shocks. So we've already seen various crises, such as the, uh, the Great Recession in 2008-9, uh, um, the European refugee crisis, the problems with the Eurozone. And I think the current crisis, which may also become an economic crisis as well as a public health crisis, kind of underlines that, that, that these um, these shocks from the outside are, are really are a, a factor in a way that political scientists maybe didn't quite factor in before. I think we can potentially see another route to democratic backsliding, which is the use of emergency powers and the rise of, I guess, what you could call a kind of technocratic populism, uh, which is less about nationalism, traditional values, conservatism, and more about really presenting the argument for a, a more anti-political and illiberal form of governance in terms of the public good, in terms of science, in terms of managerial competence, in terms of um, public health. And this may be an alternative route to uh, democratic uh, er erosion uh, fronted by uh, officials, uh, maybe military people, uh, maybe even medical professionals who, who, who have come to prominence for obvious reasons, but are also, for example, in the Czech Republic, uh, starting to play a, a more prominent role in politics. The um, deputy health minister, for example, is a, is a doctor. I think it's this kind of technocratic politics, which is potentially something to watch rather than the nationalistic politics that we've been much more kind of familiar with and worried about over the past few years. Sean, thank you very much for these insights into the, uh, the unfolding crisis and uh, the likely government responses in Central and Eastern Europe. I now want to turn to our third guest, um, Ronan McRae. Ronan, you have an interest in constitutional law and rule of law issues across Europe. And I want to really pick your brains on the repercussions of uh, Hungary's law for the European Union itself. Now, in the past, of course, the EU has been, been heavily criticised for not doing enough to hold member states accountable for violating any principles of, of rule of law. So 
with the new emergency law now flouting the EU's rules on democratic governance so blatantly to such an unprecedented degree, what has been the EU's response to date? Well, they've been slow off the mark and they keep waiting for the Orban government, I think, to, to engage sincerely with them which is something I think that's unlikely to happen. So you see the response, Didier Reyners and uh, Ursula von der Leyen both issued statements saying they're very concerned without naming Hungary. Then again, as again, 13 countries issued another statement saying that they were also extremely concerned without naming Hungary and then received a slap in the face when Hungary decided to join that statement, really throwing, uh, mocking the countries really and their inability to, to do anything. And it's interesting, actually, if you see those 13 countries, there's a, there's a real split between the pre and post accession states. Of the 14 pre-2004 member states, 13 signed the declaration saying they're concerned about Hungary. Only Austria didn't. Not one of the 2004 states did. So I think that's an interesting East-West divide. <laughs> but the other problem is that the Commission has learned its lessons. In 2012, when they took the Hungary to court for its uh, purging of the judiciary by dropping the retirement age, they took an age discrimination case. They didn't want to tackle it head on. They learned their lessons from that. And for instance, Poland, when Poland did something similar, they took a, a straight out rule of law independent judiciary case. So the commission is doing a lot or doing as much as it can. The Court of Justice has been quite active. But the problem is that the the member states are in the driving seat in the upholding the rule of law and democratic values process, Article 7, things like that. And member states don't really like to discipline each other. Um, there's a collegial atmosphere in the Council of Ministers. If you look at the by analogy, the European Convention on Human Rights, there's the European Convention on Human Rights envisages that individuals, but also states can take cases to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. And that's happened on a handful of occasions. Member states don't, states don't like to embarrass each other uh, in, the, in the Council of Europe, and they don't really like to embarrass each other in the European Union. So Hungary has played off that, and uh, it means the process is going nowhere because you need, as you know, a super majority, uh, you need unanimity really amongst the other states to deprive a member uh, state of its voting rights under Article 7. And that just isn't going to happen. Right. So that sort of explains why the EU is at this point uh, not acting more decisively. Um, it also uh, obviously opens possibilities for Orban to exploit the pandemic to such a degree. But um, what is specific to the current situation with COVID as a public health emergency playing into this already very difficult setup? Well, I think one of the things is the degree to which democratic values and the rule of law often rely on kind of good faith and sincerity by governments. Because in this situation, all governments are acting in exceptional ways. And it is, it is a true emergency in which normal rules of political behavior uh, and legal constraints are, don't apply. The problem is that, that uh, it can be exploited by, by governments in bad faith. And that is what the Orban regime has done in you know, passing a law with no sunset clause, giving indefinite extraordinary powers to, um, to the government. 
Now, the Hungarians will say, but they've done the same in France, they've done the same in Britain, they've done the same in Germany. They have, but they've normally put A, sunset clauses in, and B, well, they don't have the bad faith that the Hungarian government has shown over the last uh, 10 years. Uh, because Viktor Orban has dismantled most of the checks and balances in Hungary, he can do what he likes. And uh, he, he, has, um, he has the willingness to abuse this situation. Sure. So he can do what he wants. What can the EU do in response? So basically, we've been discussing possible measures such as around conditionality, about using um, MFF, the financial resources, the budget, to rein in um, unruly member states. What really are the legal limits on the EU powers and what can be done in this case? So the EU has the great fortune that the two uh, worst behaving countries in this regard, are uh, Poland and Hungary, are massive net beneficiaries of EU money. That does give the union a degree of leverage that they wouldn't have if it was a net contributor country. Now, can they use that? Well, they can in, if they have the determination to do so. Uh, Article 322 of the treaty allows but the, the legislation to be passed by a qualified majority, so it doesn't need unanimity, that imposes kind of um, uh, checks on how EU funds are spent. This can provide uh, the basis for legislation um, that will subject, I mean that EU funds could be frozen or not spent if the country does not respect the rule of law. Now, the pro there are two problems with that. One is it still requires a qualified majority of member states. It's not clear that qualified majority is, is there. It's also been, this has fallen victim to turf wars within the European Union. Um, the Commission has been quite ambitious, the Parliament is quite ambitious, but the Council adopted the most negative opinion possible on this. Out of, you know, mainly out of suspicion of, of empowering the Commission. Um, Charles Michel has watered down the proposed law where it used to be the case that under the Commission proposal, the Commission would freeze the funds unless a qualified majority member states voted to unfreeze. And he's reversed that, so saying there would only be freezing of funds if a qualified majority of states voted to freeze them. Now, the opportunity in the current situation is there looks likely that there will be more EU money sloshing around. There, there would be some form of extra EU spending. Mm -hmm. And the major contributor countries, Angela Merkel, uh, Germany and Angela Merkel, they, she's very keen on this kind of conditionality. There was a suggestion uh, just, just earlier that, in fact, uh, the EU's different institutions wouldn't look at these issues until the pandemic was over. Now, that, as we know, could be um, quite a considerable uh, period of time. A final question to you, then. What do you think? It is likely to happen to the EU in the midterm and possibly the long term if it doesn't address um, the questions that Hungary raises so prominently in a decisive manner. Yeah, so I think the um, the rule of law crisis has been a kind of slow burn crisis as it's just slowly getting worse and worse and worse. I mean, the, the European Union is a system of mutually enforced rules. If there is no judicial independence in Poland, if there's no democracy in, 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 in Hungary, it 
that is an action more of an, ex an existential threat to the European Union. I know people see existential threats all the time. I think we they, we see existential threats to the European Union too readily. The uh, you know the European Union has very few powers in public health, as um, Martin Selmayr said. Complaining the EU is not dealing with the crisis is like buying a cat and uh, complaining that it doesn't fetch a stick. When you go, but in fact, we see that even European governments and electorates are now so used to the existence of the Union that in relation, for instance, to the virus, they uh, expect the EU to act and to coordinate even when it doesn't have many legal powers. So the EU is, is, so, is, is here to stay to some degree. But in terms of the actual uh, legal mechanisms, which largely depend on mutual recognition, um, the willingness of national civil servants and national judges to enforce EU law. If we have two openly non-democratic countries or countries where the judiciary is clearly subservient to uh, the executive, I just don't see how the EU system works in that regard. We're already seeing in criminal justice in Poland the beginning, the unraveling of mutual recognition. And I think that could happen. And if, if Orban doesn't relinquish the powers, the special powers he's taken, which, you know, happens a lot. In Ireland, they declared a state of emergency in 1939 for World War II that lasted until 1976. Uh, so they, uh, you know, once these powers are taken, it, they become so useful, it's hard to live without them. But could you have a Hungarian government sitting in the council ministers voting when they have a rule by decree at home? Uh, I find it hard to, to see how the, the system works with that, in that situation. That is clearly a lot of food for thought, Ronan, and there are no easy answers, that's very clear. Thank you very much to you, and um, thank you also again to Tom and to Sean uh, for joining us today. It's been a real privilege talking to you about Hungary and COVID-19. And of course, thanks are also due to you, our listeners, for tuning in. As the coronavirus crisis will remain a major challenge for Europe and globally, of course, in the weeks to come, we will provide further analyses and discussions as part of the series. Please do subscribe to our online newsletter and consider following us on social media to keep up to date with our activities. We hope you will also join us next time. Until then, stay safe.